morning. Oh, that was pathetic. Too much turkey. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's better. That's better. Uh, I'm Dave Foster. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview. Uh, it's been a privilege to uh, have the opportunity to come this morning on Thanksgiving morning. I love the fact that John, Pastor John, was referencing the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It does my historian's heart well and warm to uh, hear him mention that. Uh, what a great time we live in. What a privilege to uh, know that we stand upon the heritage and the shoulders of great men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and John Knox, and all of the American uh, Reformed theologians. It's just an awesome, awesome time to be alive. Well, this morning... We're going to focus our attention not upon those men, but upon our God. And we're going to do that by continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start in chapter 7. But as always, we have to stand and make our statement of who we are in Christ. So stand now with me and repeat after me. By the power and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not suggest, but I command that any and all evil get out of here. For my mind is a quiet place. It's a holy place where only Jesus and I may talk. And my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we open your word this morning, may you make our hearts, our minds, our whole bodies uh, receptors for your Holy Spirit. May we have an understanding as we uh, delve into the truths that are revealed here, especially today as we look at miracles May they come home to us. May they uh, be inspire us, uh, Father, and may we just uh, be used by you in a miraculous way in the lives of those that we come in contact with on a daily basis. Father, uh, we look for you in many ways in our life, and we pray, Father, as we struggle and we wrestle with what you're doing in our world, that, Father, we will continue to live in obedience and have the strength to continue this week because we've been here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat. So like I said, we're continuing in our uh, stroll through Mark. We're in chapter 7. This morning we're going to be looking at three stories of miracles. Now, it's true, as we look through this, as one of my friends said, well, why focus on miracles this morning? Isn't the entire gospel of Mark uh, just one big miracle? And there's some real truth to that. But this morning we're going to just focus on that for a second because it's been my experience in my ministry years, and perhaps you can share this with me, that when we encounter these stories coming from the pages of Scripture, uh, talking about what Jesus has done, Jesus uh, was the conduit for the power of God his Father to conduct miracles in the lives of people, it's easy to just think that that's exciting. And I'm, I'm guessing this morning that if you've been in the church for any time at all, and someone were to just ask you, uh, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin, that he came in an incarnate way, God becoming a man, that he died for our sins on the cross and rose again, that you might be tempted to say somewhat flippantly, of course, yes, I do. But now if that same person were to ask you and say, uh, I just recently heard of a miracle, and this is the circumstances, what do you think of that? And most of us in our collective Western evangelical heritage get a little uncomfortable with that. We're just like, oh, a miracle, huh? Well, who did it? What were the circumstances? We have to test the spirits, you know. We have to make sure that uh, some things are not being credited where they don't belong. This morning, I hope that by the time we're done here today, 
we're going to put aside those, uh, those filters. And we're going to look and see the power of God for what it is. My hope and my prayer, because as I've gone through this, this has been the result for me, that as we read these three stories, we're going to walk away from here today saying, God, you are an amazing God. You are a powerful God. I remember when I was uh, first in theological training in seminary, my wife and I uh, were living in Dallas, Texas at the time, and I had a class on the study of angels uh, with one of my favorite teachers, Dr. Norman Geisler, a world-famous philosopher, apologist, a man who just was uh, esteemed for his intellect. And Dr. Geisler was teaching us all about angels. And if you do much study in the Old Testament and New Testament, you realize that almost every single time that God does something miraculous in this world, he does it through the mediation of angels. He uses angels to carry forth his will. And I really never considered that before. My wife and I were talking about it once I was home, and we were just thinking about that. And the story goes that as she was uh, teaching school sometime that week uh, in Richardson, Texas, she was walking home, and it was an incredibly windy, blustery day. And she had an armload of books as she was walking to our small little apartment. And all of a sudden, some gloves that she had in her coat pockets that were kind of hanging out, one of the gloves just went flying down the street in front of her. And she couldn't really put down everything and go chase that glove. And as the wind was blowing, it just kept tumbling down the street. And it occurred to Ione at that moment to say, well, you know what, God, I remember what we were talking about the other night. And I'm just going to pray, God, send one of your angels right now and stop that glove before it goes down the sewer that it was getting very close to. And bam, glove just stopped. Wind's still howling, but the glove stopped. And she's a good 15, 20 feet away from it. And as she's walking, her cynical heart, like all of ours, is going, any second now, that glove's just going to blow, and it's going to go away, and this would have been such a cool story if it had actually worked. But as she got close to it, she actually stomped on it like that was necessary. But the glove didn't go anywhere. The glove stayed right there. And she had what I sometimes refer to as that miraculous response that I see all the times in God's people's eyes when they see the miraculous in the first person. Your eyes get big, and it dawns on you. Now, my wife had grown up, a pastor's daughter, three generations of pastors, this woman has certification. She is of noble breed. She is one of those that, you know, I, with my crusty background, should never have come near. But still, her testimony is she'd never seen the power of God in that way before. And in that miraculous response, you could just see it dawned on her. God is real. Those stories that I've read from Scripture... They still happen today. And you think, well, that's just a silly glove. Some of you who are scientists out here are thinking about wind currents, wind streams, you know, aerodynamics, and what was going on in that street, what was the, you know, the cant of the cements and so forth. And I'm just telling you, God still is there. God works. Well, let's look at these three miracles this morning. We're looking in Mark chapter 7. These three miracles are special miracles, by the way. Out of all the miracles that Jesus has performed so far in the Gospels, these three come leaping out to us because of whom they're directed towards. Let's take a look. I'm going to read from verse 24. And from there, he rose, went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. The idea is, is that Jesus has been doing ministry. He's been out there working hard. Some people refer to this phase of Jesus' ministry life as the retirement phase, where he has been so active. He's been the guy out front. He's been the band leader. He's the one that's preaching the sermons. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's doing all these things. But at this point in his ministry, we see over and over again how he is retiring away from the people and putting his disciples more in the fore, right? So they couldn't really hide him. He could not be hidden, it says, verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So what we have is Jesus doing sort of a detour. Most of his ministry life, Jesus is in the area of Galilee, where Nazareth is, around the Sea of Galilee, where so many of those apostles made their living. And then he goes often down to Jerusalem uh, on pilgrimages, and he has many confrontations with the Jewish leadership. But in this particular case, Jesus is going way north of his usual route. Uh, I have a little map. I don't know if it's up there yet. But anyway, uh, he's up in the Tyre Sidon area, and he is ministering in a place that he doesn't usually go because the people who live there are not normally people of the covenant family of Israel. They're Gentiles. And that's what it says here. This woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Her ancestry is such that the peoples that she is from traditionally have made war against Israel. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, said, Yes, Lord, uh, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demons have left your daughter. Now, you want to compare this with the parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew to get the full story. That's what happens as we read the Gospels, right? We have to make sure that we're staying in a parallel passage study because we're getting bits and pieces of the story from each gospel writer. Mark, of course, is giving us the related facts that he got from the Apostle Peter because Mark himself wasn't even there. Matthew is giving us his account of it, probably after having read what Mark wrote. He's filling in some of the details. In this first miracle this morning, I'm calling this a miracle of perseverance because what we're going to see with this Syrophoenician lady, is that she encounters various stages of resistance to her request for a miracle. She comes not because she's been invited, not because she'll be welcome. She comes because she is desperate. And I can guarantee you that her faith at this point in her life is nothing akin to the faith that many of us might have experienced already as believers in Jesus Christ. She probably knew almost nothing about the man himself, just the rumors that were circulating, even in her area, that a miracle man had shown up. And she was probably terrified for her daughter. Now, we're not told what is the manifestation of the Spirit in her heart. In fact, again, this was going to be one of those Western uh, uh, post-enlightenment things for us. We're like, demon possession? Come on, Dave. That's crazy. She probably had a mental illness or she was just sick or something like that. We just don't run across demon possession that much. But yet, you know, uh, as I said earlier, fully 30% of Mark's gospel is about miracles. 
and those miracles, the majority of them cover two things, healing the sick and casting demons out of people. Jesus had a situation here that he was well acquainted with. This demon was doing something to this woman's daughter that caused her pain, that caused her embarrassment, that made the mother be so fearful that despite the fact that she had no right to ask this man, this miracle worker, for help, she shows up at his doorstep. And we see several areas of resistance. First of all, just from the physical proximity to Christ. I mean, what are the odds, as far as she is concerned, that the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christos, the Christ, would show up in her neighborhood and actually allow her to have access to this man, that he's hidden in a house. It wasn't spread around the community. There wasn't a neon sign that said, come here, be healed, get demons cast out. He was hidden, and yet she still pressed on. She went right through those resistance steps. And then when she gets there, and this is true in the, in the, uh, the story that we have in Matthew, that the very people who are entrusted with ministry, those are Jesus' disciples, are the very ones ignoring her, pushing her away. It's another level of resistance. And even it gets worse because it says that when she sees him and she starts going towards him, what does he do? He ignores her. He turns away from her. And yet this woman pushes through. She pushes on. It doesn't seem to matter what levels of resistance she runs into. Everything that she runs into, she pushes through. And when she finally gets an opportunity to be close to Christ, Christ takes the initiative to put her in her place. We don't help your kind. I'm here for the children, which of course is the nation of Israel. I am bringing the kingdom of God to my people, not to your people, not to you Phoenicians, not to, to you Sidonites. You're the people who have warred traditionally against Israel. I am here for them. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take their bread and feed it to the dogs. And then she takes his words, even at this point. Now, I don't know about you. I'd probably been slinking out of the house by this time. I'd be thinking, all right, I gave it my best shot. I don't know what I'm going to do about my daughter, but I'm out of here. But this woman responds to Christ in kind. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What faith? What kind of miracle do you need today? How do you need to see the power of God? I don't know about you, but I've been in prayer for so many things in my life. And most of the time, you feel frustrated, don't you? People tell me all the time, the reason that I'm an atheist or an agnostic is because of unanswered prayer. God doesn't seem to care. I hear you guys stand up there and say, all you have to do is ask, knock, and you shall find, and so forth. But God doesn't seem to respond. We've all had that experience, if you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time. But this woman doesn't even allow that kind of discouragement to get in her way. She persists. She persists, she persists, she persists. She goes through every roadblock you can. Even God seemingly telling her, this is not her time, her place, this is not going to happen. She still comes right back at him in faith and praise and beseeches the Lord for his mercies. And for whatever reason, Jesus hearing her response is moved. And he says, for this statement, you may go your way. Your demon has left your daughter. And she finds in the next verse that is true. 
She goes home, found the child lying in bed, and whatever was afflicting this child, the demon was gone. What a great answer to prayer. Man, the world needs to see Christians who are persevering. We need to see non-Christians have the faith in God to know that if they come and they're in the association with people who know Christ, that they have access to that miracle worker. Their prayers can be heard as well. Jesus has come for them as much as he's come for us. And the truth of the matter is, as we're going to see in all of these miracles, is that we are more in relationship with this woman than we are with the children of Israel, right? Most of us sitting here today, we're Gentiles. We don't have any claim on God. We don't have any right to have an expectation of his miraculous power. We're coming forth. We're pressing. We're pushing. We talk about the parable that Jesus tells about the woman who persists in asking God over and over again for his blessing. And the children of Israel rejoice. Now, there's a lot of kingdom implications there. But this story is for you and it's for me. We can push upon God. We can push upon Even when it seems like every door is closed, Jesus said, come on. This is a miracle of perseverance. Let's look at the next one. Jesus heals a deaf man. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre, where he just was, and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And talking, taking him aside from the crowd, privately he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be opened. And his eyes, excuse me, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. This is a, a miracle for the lost. And the reason I say this is because there's something miraculous happening here besides the healing. This is so powerful. Jesus has now come around the Sea of Galilee, almost a 120-mile journey from where he was in Tyre. I don't know if you've walked 120 miles lately, <coughs> but that's the height. And he's come down, <coughs> excuse me, to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, into the Greek area of Decapolis. And this is a place that is frequented by Gentiles. Mostly Greeks live here. And somewhere along the line, people got the idea that, again, hearing about the miracle man, they could bring a friend who could not hear and who could not speak, or at least he couldn't speak clearly. And they wanted Jesus to do something for him. And the amazing part of this story, that if you don't catch it, if you don't do your study, is the word used here, referencing the fact that he could not hear and he could not speak, is the same word translated of the Old Testament from Isaiah 35. I want to turn there real quick. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Now, in the previous part of 35 and in chapter 34 of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah has been condemning the people of Israel because of their great disobedience. They have not been following God. There are so many things that they've done wrong, and God is saying there's going to come upon you a time of judgment and a punishment, and there's going to be a time of purification. But at the end of that time, there is hope. And he says in verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth from the wilderness, and streams in the desert. As Jesus is talking to this man, it says he takes him aside, and then he does his miracle. And if people understand, people understand 
that the kingdom of God has been brought to them. Now, as I just said earlier, the kingdom of God is what the Messiah was all about. He was offering that to his children of Israel. But no one expected him to do this for the Gentiles. Yet, in fact, if we understand the covenant that was made with Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15, where it is clearly stated, after God gets done blessing Abraham and going through the, the covenant, if you remember where Abraham was put to sleep and God alone does the rite of covenant, that he says, this will be for a blessing not only to Israel, but to the nations of the earth. And when Jesus makes this statement using those words, as he does from Isaiah in this miracle, those who are around him understood immediately what he was saying. I am offering the kingdom. It's going to go beyond the nation of Israel. It's going to be almost a prophetic utterance for the time in which Paul writes his book of, or epistle of Romans. And he talks about how there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but there's only one people of God. I don't know why Jesus does what he does on this healing. I can guess that he, why he gives them a wet willy. Basically, he sticks his fingers in his ears. I suppose because the deaf man cannot hear him say, ears be opened. So he has to do that. And when he pulls his fingers out, all of a sudden the man can hear, right? That part I can live with. It's the spitting on the fingers and then pulling his tongue out, I guess, and touching his tongue with saliva. That might be a little strange. But if you've ever known anyone that has had something like a cochlear implant or has somehow regained hearing, it's a, just a joyous occasion. And I'm sure this man, as soon as his hearing was restored, he didn't care what Jesus did. But Jesus, in a very graphic, physical way, demonstrated that he had authority, even over the illnesses of the Gentiles, even over all the world's problems and trials. And in a dramatic way, he brought his hearing back, and he brought his speaking back. And then it says, he told the man, do not tell anybody else. It's in the imperative. He charged them to tell no one. But no matter how many times he charged them with that, and I, don't, I can't even grasp that. I was trying to think, what's he doing? Now, don't tell anyone. Now, you heard what I said. Okay? Yeah, you. Yeah, you. Don't remember, you're not telling anyone, right? He went out and did it. It's, the idea is repetitious command. And he says, the more zealously, the more emphatically, with the heart, with all that they were in being, they proclaimed it. One translation has, they published it. It went everywhere. And then that last verse there, chapter 7, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The Isaiah prophecy came home. In that one verse, these people got it. The kingdom of God was going to be offered, not just to the people of Israel, whose reaction, by the way, up to this point has been less well than receptive. They've been absolutely nasty about Christ. Uh, no, thank you. We're going to wait for the next Messiah to come along. Uh, you're not really fitting the bill for what we want and expect it. But now they hear what Jesus is saying. They see what he is doing, and they realize the kingdom of God is at hand all the excitement that that must have caused. But we have to focus on that pronoun. And they were astonished. Who are they? The Gentiles that saw this man be healed? Possibly. Probably. But I think more than that's going on here. 
I think it's those disciples. If this is the withdrawing period of Jesus' ministry, this means that his little loyal band of guys following him around, they're watching everything that he's doing because more and more they're being put on the front lines. Jesus is asking them to go into the villages and do the healing and casting out the demons and so forth. And they were astonished. This may be a miracle for the lost, but it's also a miracle for those who have lost their way in Christ, those who have not understood what he's trying to do. Miracles have power. You know, Jesus just didn't heal anybody and everyone. He didn't do everything that people asked him to do. He continuously references his father. i got to check with Dad. Does he say this is right, this is the way to go? He even does that here, as we said. He takes him aside uh, privately, and he puts his fingers in his ears, spitting on his tongue, and then looking up to heaven. You know, it's a direct picture of him asking permission. He sighed and said to him, and that's the power. Jesus in his healing doesn't do it across the board. Miracles are never about you and me. It's not about getting what we want. It's understanding what the Father wants, who he's targeting, who he's trying to show himself powerful to. When we were in Mexico uh, with my youth group, we used to go every year, I had a 70-some uh, kids with me. And we had about three, four village churches that we worked with every year. We did a VBS. And uh, at the end of that vacation Bible school on Friday was always our time to share the gospel with the children. So we had anywhere from one to 200 little Mexican children sitting there. Uh, one of my students with a translator getting ready to share it's always the highlight of the week. As the gospel would go out, kids would respond, and you think, oh, that's perfect. And I was standing in the back watching all this, and one of my senior boys, his name was Zane, standing next to me. And he, he, he came on the trip, but it was one of those things I had to fight for in his life. He'd been in my church all his life. He knew the story. He thought he had been there, done that. But uh, I kept him close to me. And we're standing there, and just as my student's about ready to start sharing the gospel, all of a sudden, from over the six-foot cinder block wall, comes this music, just loud as loud can be. And we're like, oh, no. And Zane looks at me and goes, Dave, what are we going to do? The kids can't hear. Look at all these kids. They're all looking over the wall now. We've lost their attention. Oh, this is a disaster. I said to Zane, Zane, let's pray. Let's ask God for a miracle. What do you mean? Let's just pray. Let's ask. So we kind of put our heads together, and I just say, Hey, Father, you know why we're here? You know we need to see this happen today? Right now, stop this music, because we want your gospel to go out to save these children. In Jesus' name, amen. And no sooner than I had said amen, then it was just like a record needle. It and the music stopped. Now, those of you who are young, you can ask someone else what a record needle is. But that's what it seemed like at the moment. And I just, again... I saw that miracle response in Zane's eyes. He looked at me. His eyes were huge. And he actually said to me, this means that God is real. Now again, the cynic could be sitting out here saying, oh, well, uh, just a coincidence. Somebody thought, oh, I'm going to turn off that music. Or somebody came over and complained or something. <coughs> but I don't believe that. Zane doesn't believe that. This was a miracle for the lost. We knew that gospel had to go out. We couldn't afford to lose our children. We were leaving that next day to come back to the States. God can do those things. He's a powerful God. Let's look at the last miracle. Jesus feeds the 4,000. 
This is a miracle for the hard-hearted. And I'll tell you why in a second. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they're going to faint on their way home. And some of them have come from far away. His disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. Well, he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke and then gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And then he sent them away. Now, if you were with us earlier in Mark, chapter 6, we had the feeding of the 5,000 already. And some uh, scholars think, oh, well, this is just a repetitious. This is a, a scribal error. The same miracle has been repeated, a few small differences. These are variances. Uh, it just proves, once again, the New Testament is full of holes and we got problems. But that's really not what's going on here. If you really look at these two miracles and you place them side by side, you see that there are some significant differences. One, of course, is the number. There's 5,000 in one miracle, 4,000 in another. But also in the location. The original one in chapter 6 is up by Bethsaida. It's up in the what I'd call the Jewish section of the northern sea rim of Galilee. This one is in Decapolis, definitely in a Gentile neighborhood. This miracle, this feeding, is being done for people who did not belong to covenant Israel. Uh, in one, uh, they've got a different number of fish, different number of loaves. The word basket in the original in Mark 6 is referencing just a regular flat basket, a reed-made basket that they might have carried anything in. In this section of Mark chapter 8, we see that the word is more closely akin to something like a hamper, like a laundry hamper. This is a big carrying unit. So when they are doing this miracle and they're handing out the, the bread and the fish, uh, they actually have far more left over than they did before. This is another miracle for the lost, but it's also for the hard-hearted. And the reason I say that is because this miracle is really more of a focus on those disciples again. Now, when we went to foreign countries as missions trips, often people would say to me, well, Dave, this is so awesome that you care so much about the children in Mexico or the children, you know, wherever we were going, that you would do all this effort, raise all this money, do all the stuff that you're doing to help. But what I would always think in my heart is really the person I'm targeting is your children, the ones I'm bringing along on my ministry team. Because by far, those miracles that we saw had a greater impact upon the kids I brought with me from the States than they ever did upon the kids that we were ministering to. And that's exactly what you see in this feeding of the 4,000. You see that Christ has got his guys in, in position. Because his disciples answered him, notice this, uh, in verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Almost the exact same response you can read back in Mark 6 at the feeding of the 5,000. What have these disciples learned between these two incidents, between these two miracles? It would seem not much. Jesus had already showed he has power over multiplying food. When Jesus says, do this, our response should not be, well, I've got a few problems with this, Christ. Uh, this, this is not for me. 
our response should be, yes, sir. Yep, I believe in you. I trust you. You're going to get this done. And these, and these disciples, when they pass this stuff out and they see the return, that the people not only have been fed, and this is just 4,000 men, there were more women and children besides, as was commonly counted back in these days. And when they see the return, they're amazed. They were astonished. They can't believe this has happened again. I'm telling you this. The people that we live with, that we work with, that we go to school with, they need to see this kind of power from God. And the only place that they can see this, the only place that this makes sense, is when we, God's people, bring our miracle worker with us into their lives. When we show them that they have access to the same God that we have. But who wants to have access to a God where we just go through the motions? Where we're just kind of living our lives on a day-by-day basis? I see it all too often, that response. Well, that's, that's great that these are stories. We can teach them in Sunday school. But I don't know. I don't know if God still does these things. Maybe when Jesus comes back, there will be more of these things. Well, I'm telling you, all around the world today, there are stories of miracle after miracle. In the global south, as the gospel is penetrating below the equator, in South America, in Africa, in Asia, we're seeing story after story after story. It does a miraculous thing, sometimes for his church, sometimes through his church, and sometimes completely without his church. And I think the reason we don't see more of it right here at home is because we don't pray with such expectation. We are not involved with God's marching orders to bring the gospel to those that are lost that we know. We're content with being fed about these stories, but we really don't believe that we have a role in them. I was with some kids, and we were, again, on another mission trip. You're seeing a pattern here, right? Um, And one of the guys during a chapel service uh, all of a sudden fell to the ground started flopping around, cursing God's name. And we right away decided this kid is having some kind of demon possession added, uh, situation. So the pastors in my group got together with him, prayed over him. But I could tell it really shook the rest of the kids in my, in my ministry. Now, these were not outside kids. These were church kids raised in the church. And as I was sitting that night with one of them, as we were having devotions to end the day, I remember this beautiful young woman looked at me, and she was terrified, absolutely terrified. And I said, why are you frightened? And she said, because if that could happen, that means that all of this is true. I said, exactly. Did you think it wasn't? That's a challenge before us today, right? Not just reading, not just absorbing, but living it out, taking God at his word, Understand that he is a God of power. Oh, man. What a great God we serve, right? What an awesome, awesome Lord that he is. As we look at these verses, and the people pick up the baskets, and they melt away into the countryside, Jesus has done a great job of showing us that the gospel has come for the lost. He's reached the Syrophoenician woman. He's reached the man who needed to have his hearing and his speech restored, who lived in Decapolis, probably a Gentile, and he's fed 4,000 Gentiles at once. Now, what do you suppose the impact in their community was all about? We already have seen the woman at the well in Samaria, John chapter 4, rushing back and telling everyone about Jesus and the long-term impacts that had. 
I can't imagine the testimony and the impact that these stories, that these testimonies had for the people of their day. We are a church that needs to be mobilized. We are a church that needs to be energized. And the way we do that is by focusing on a God that we trust and we believe, answers prayer, does miracles, and is a powerful, powerful God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We praise you for the stories that you've given us, for the tales of these miracles. Lord, may they not stay kids' stories, Sunday school curriculum, but may become a testimony of our lives. May we trust you. May we pray as if we trust you to see your mighty grace, your mighty power in the lives of those that we love and that we care for. Father, as Gentiles, as those who have received the inheritance of these stories, as the kingdom of God has been offered to all peoples, we say thank you. In humble gratitude, thank you. Lord, use us in whatever way that you wish. We pray this in Jesus' name.